The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From the 15th century, the independent city-states that now make up much of Italy were taken over by a series of powerful families, whose wars and dynastic alliances marked the period as one of volatile politics and brutal power shifts. In her new book, Princes of the Renaissance, historian Mary Hollingsworth explores this web of alliances, looking not just at its political impact on the region, but also how the family's nurturing of artists and writers led to some of the most famous art and architecture of the Italian Renaissance. Putting the questions to Mary was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. Today we're talking to Mary Hollingsworth about her new book, Princes of the Renaissance. Uh, And Mary, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for asking me. And I wondered, um, to start with, can you just introduce us or the listeners to the period that your book book covers and and very broadly what regions of Italy looked like during this period? Um, Yes, the, the book covers quite a large period of Italian history, so basically sort of 1400 to 1600. And um, during this time, the um, the, it, the politics of the peninsula changed quite dramatically. And in a way, that's the subject of the book, is watching the way in which the, the, the politics changes. But it, it is, the important thing to remember is that Italy isn't a, un, isn't a unit. It's a collection of, of princely states, uh, two republics and a lot of princely states. And some of them are, it's slightly more complicated because some of them are papal fiefs and some of them are imperial fiefs. So, you know, there's different sort of allegiances in that sense. And a lot of them change hands over the years um, that the book covers. And um, But basically the important point is that they're all separate and quite distinct places. Each has their own, for example, each ha- they each have their own currency. They each have their own systems of weights and measures. I mean, it's incredibly complicated from that point of view. You know, they at a length, a, a, you know, sort of a yard of something that you buy in Florence is less, is a different length to the same word used that you buy in Venice, for example. That must make research um, certainly a challenge. Uh, and there's a huge <laughs> amount of detail in the book. Um, and I've got a copy of it here in front of me. And, and well, I hope you don't mind me saying there, there are so many names and so many figures. And I've got some of the wonderful, very helpful family trees in front of me to, to help me navigate this this chat. Um, and there are many names that might be familiar to listeners. There, there, there's uh, family, family members of the Medici that pop up. Um, how do you go about choosing the figures to feature that tell the story of this period, um, that in, well, it, yes, that that the important point about that is that they, they are princes. So the Medici, who normally feature quite heavily in the fifteenth um, century histories of Italy, are not princes at that stage, and so they don't um, uh, feature at all until well into the 16th century. And so I've been quite specific about princes, and I haven't included um, uh, popes either. 
Um, but so I've just included people who were, I suppose it's rather a snobbish way of putting it, were aristocrats, <laughs> ruling, basically rulers, and, and not always rulers. Sometimes there's brothers and sisters, sometimes they're wives, um, but connected directly to... So the, the, the chapters all deal with more than one person. And um, it, it, the, the different sorts of relationships reflect the complexity. They were all related to each other in quite complicated ways, but it was a way of establishing allegiances. So, you know, if you wanted to get be in, a, in an alliance with one particular person or one side of an argument, you know, you would form the, the alliance and it wouldn't just be a, a formal treaty that you signed, but you'd celebrate it with a marriage between the two sides so that then the children, you know, it, it, you can see how it rapidly became incredibly complicated. And of course, illegitimate children worked in this system as well. So it was, you know, illegitimate daughters wouldn't have quite such grand wives as legitimate daughters, but they, but they also provided the link. Right. Uh, yes, you're right. It's a very complex web of alliances, <laughs> exactly. and but the the transfer of power, um, as well as these alliances, in in many instances, it seems to be quite brutal, quite bullying tactics employed by some of these princes. Um, can you give any examples of, you know, the siege tactics or the, the plundering that went on? Um, I think practically every state in the 15th century, apart from the, every princely state, was acquired by brutal tactics. Sometimes it was, sometimes it was just one family was a, a rioting, a, a, you know, civic riots getting the better of another family and establishing themselves at the top of pecking order in that particular time. But quite a lot of them were won by, you know, major battles. So um, the king of Aragon, as in Spain, um, part of Spain, um, the king of Aragon sailed across the Mediterranean and conquered the kingdom of Naples, which is most of Italy south of Rome. I mean, that is an immense area of land. But he did that, you know, that took him several, I mean, it took him a decade. And um, he did that sort of, yeah, by winning battles against, you know, the, against the opposition. But um, more brutal were people like the Sforzas um, coming to power in Milan. And they just, you know, when they just besieged the city and starved, starved the predecessors out. I mean, it is, it is a brutal world, the world of the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you don't include um, popes in this account for the reason you've mentioned that you kept, you know, you focused on the princes of, of this period. Um, but during this period, the, the papacy had just come back to Italy from Avignon at the start of the period you're writing about. Um, and and how does the activity of, of the popes and their courts affect the period? As, uh, what sort of influence could be attained by positions in it? You see that, that their influence on lots of these families you're writing yeah, that about. Is the, that is the critical point, and that's one of the reasons why I didn't include any really in, include any popes um, specifically in the in, as um, patrons, and they, they 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 appear as patrons. But the um, is because they play a key role in this whole political machination. Because what you, you know, if you had the pope on your side, you could. Um, you could get away with much more than if you didn't, if you had the Pope against you. Um, the Pope had a sort of, the Pope had secular authority. Obviously, he was you know, the head of the church, Catholic church, but also he had a secular authority, a secular role. Um, and he could pull, you know, if you don't do what I tell you, you know, God will get cross kind of line, which isn't, you know, which your average tyrant couldn't do. <laughs> 
Um, so it's quite difficult to explain, but the, the, the popes play an absolutely critical role. And one of the reasons is because the papacy has come back to Italy from after several, um, almost a century absence. And it becomes, it dominated for the rest of the, from the 15th century onwards, it is dominated by Italians. So there's a non-Italian pope at the beginning of the 16th century, who is, um, who's 1521 to 23, and the next foreign pope is John Paul II. So, like, that is a very long gap. Um, uh, so you can see how... That, and one of the ways that they ensured their control of the papacy was always to appoint Italian cardinals. And a lot of the cardinals they appointed were um, members of these princely families who then went on to either to become pope or, if they weren't, then to make sure they were... They became princely families. So the first pope to do this is probably Pius II, 1458-64. He um he establishes his he goes into an alliance with um Alphonse, the King of Aragon, who by this stage is King of Naples as well, and to make sure to establish his um nephews in the in positions you know, of sort of become dukes and various of dukes of various places within the, the the kingdom of Naples. So other other families use a different you know, use I don't know imperial connections to get their you know to get their to get their titles. But it's absolutely critical it, the way in which the arist- aristocratization of um, the Italian upper non sort of middle of middle ranking um, non nobles, but not. Um, I think barons, I suppose you might call them. I'm trying to think of, an, of a good... Um, they're definitely not Republicans, that's for certain. <laughs> right. So a lot of these um, princes then, it, it, throughout your book, you document, you look at how they become patrons of this burgeoning um, Renaissance culture, this human Renaissance humanism. Can you define that term for us to start with, and perhaps we can talk then about how they went about um, supporting these? It's incredibly complicated. Um, it's well, it's, it's difficult because of the word. It's, it's in itself, it's not complicated, but it's difficult because of the word because we it, it, humanists in twenty first century are quite unlike humanists in 15th and 16th century. A humanist was somebody who studied and um, read and um, wrote the literature of cultural remains or the literary remains of uh, classical antiquity, particularly ancient Rome. And, made, you know, they, at the beginning of the 15th century, they were looking, they would, um, I don't know, collect... Um, they would collect manuscripts. They would f- search monastic libraries to find the manuscripts of the ancient authors that had, you know, so so called been lost in the dark ages. And um, anyway, they would read and they would read histories and read um, the letters of Cicero and all these things, and then you know write their own sort of in- imitation. So they were kind of cultured, educated, but educated in a specific way and not necessarily. I mean, educated in the in the classics. Ancient Rome first, and then ancient Greece. And the word humanist comes, as used then, comes from the slang, student slang. They studied something called um, humanitas, and that was translated. And a humanista was the um, 
nickname for the professor that taught them, you know, gen- a generic, you know, my humanist, uh, well, like my tutor, you might say my tutor in, in, in sort of modern, in modern parlance. So that's all it means. And it, over, the, over the centuries, and particularly during the Enlightenment, it developed an entirely different, uh, or int- uh, not entirely different, but a different sort of meaning. Mm-hmm. Is that a bit clearer? <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I, I think so. I, I mean, perhaps we could maybe talk about some examples of the types of, of art and literature that these rulers were becoming enamoured with and sponsoring and raising up in their courts. Well, in particular, I mean, the first thing that happens is that is the coins, the coins that the you know these people who are looking hunting for manuscripts in monastic libraries, you know, all actually all they have to do is that look talk to the local farmers in northern Italy who were just you know every day every year they would just you know they plow their fields and it would be filled it'd be turning up classical coins and so they collected people collected these coins and you know the standard coin like we have you know it was sort of um, uh, it had a portrait head on one side and an, an inscription of various sorts or or an emblem or something on the other and they they made their own in imitation um of the classical counterparts and that sort of that all starts in um Ferrara and Rimini which are not well known known centers of the renaissance but that's those by the princes you know the princes these are two both places where princes had a particular interest in classical literature and uh, one was very warlike and one was very passive, pacific. Um, so it didn't doesn't seem to you. The, of course, the great thing about the classical tradition is that it provides models for every sort of ruler. You know, you could have the serious-minded cultural. You know, you you could have a you know, somebody with a real taste flair for the cult, culture of ancient Rome, or you can you know tyrants, democrats, the lot. I mean, you know, democrat and republicans, sort of. These are all you know terms that derive ultimately from ancient the ancient world still to come on the history extra podcast it suddenly you know it becomes real rather than talking about exalted things like doric columns and you know drapery studies but actually it's really just about dogs This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter, because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. So this harking back to classical antiquity, it also played out in some architecture that was being um, created or, or re- is that the right word renovated during this period? I'm not quite sure. Well, I think it was. I think it was. Re- I think the. I think they were being. You know, the, the, the classical monuments were being built, um, but they were. I mean, the really interesting thing is, it's the idea is the revival of the classical orders of architecture. So the columns that you see on on a building in a modern build, even a sort of you know 19th century building, a pro- have the, the, the the top of the column has a kind of is decorated in a particular way, and in in a classical 
the sort of classical theory was that the ancient Rome um, is that there were five different types of columns and they, they each had a different, you know, Doric, Ionic, Corinthian composite. They each had their own um, particular de- decoration at the top. But then modern, there's all sorts of interesting modern examples where people have been much more inventive and, you know, so more inventive, more... Um, what's the right word, spatial, more specific to the period. Um, you know, they'll, they'll put, I don't know, corn cobs or something. There's examples of that. But it, but the point is that, these, that it's the revival of this particular type of um, column. And in particular, the, the it's columns, according to the classical, should be carried on flat. So round columns on a flat architrave, whereas um, arches should be carried on piers, which are square in um, um, in, 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 in plan. If you think of the um, Colosseum, it's got both. So it has the piers at the back and the columns on the front. And um, But it's the revival of those things that takes place at the beginning around 1450 onwards in uh, northern Italy, in the courts, at the courts at Rimini and Ferrara. Thanks very, in large part, to... Um, one of the most famous Renaissance architects who's called Leon Battista Alberti, who actually isn't what we call, he isn't a trained architect. He's a trained, um, his, you know, he's totally fascinated with ancient Roman culture and he earns his money at the papal court as an abbreviator, which is a, let, so a letter writer, I think you call it, sort of a, a clerk, really, at the papal court. And um, But he spent, in his spare time, he digs up, you know, ancient Roman ships and, Anyway, he's a kind of polymath, but he's a very interesting person. But he wrote treatises on all sorts of weird things, but very much in the same in imitation of classical, um, the classical habit of writing treatises. So much treatise on horse, for example, as all series of things. I, I think something that's really interesting is how these these all of these elements were so crucial in many of these courts in projecting that sense of opulence of power of of authority um and how apart from the coins that you've already talked about you know how was it also used for kind of those propaganda purposes well i think they i mean think very definitely it's the idea of being heir to the imperial tradition ancient roman imperial tradition is quite important in northern in italy because um after all italy was the roman you know was the basis of the the the, the roman empire and there was an awful lot of ancient roman stuff still you know i mean obviously there's a lot in ancient there's a lot in rome but outside rome there, there are sort of you know there are arches and don't know anyone who's been to verona there's an amphitheater in the center of verona um there are arches in um triumphal arches in padua ancona you know i can there's sort of various places that and, and an awful lot of stuff in and around naples um which they, you know, which which these people could very definitely call on and and to use to show, you know, that they were part of the old ruling tradition. That was very much what they wanted. Not, I mean, competitively with each other, but not in not not trying to revive the concept of the Roman Empire per se, but each of them as the individual, as it were, competitively. I'm the heir. No, no, no. I'm the heir. Got you. That kind of power struggle coming into play again. Yeah, exactly. There's an awful lot of power and a lot power struggle, a lot of rivalry. And, you know, I'm better than you, kind of, and I'm bigger than you. And 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 also the other thing is, I mean, it's just nothing's really different. I mean, if you go to a city and it's filthy and, you know, the drains smell, you don't go, 
oh, this is a really grand place. Whereas if you, you know, you go somewhere and the buildings are huge and the streets are all paved and there isn't a strange smell, <laughs> you get the impression that you're in, in the presence of somebody powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. Um, I wanted to pick up on this idea of rivalries because the way your book is structured, you, you, um, I don't want to say pit against one another. That's not what you're doing. But you, uh, you look at um, various figures, um, often in in relief to one another in the chapters. Um, can you talk a bit more about that approach and how you, um, how you looked at the figures side by side? A few examples. Okay, so in fact, oddly, it was like this. Also, was inspired by um, an ancient, you know, ancient Roman, um, ancient Roman tradition of compare and contrast. I mean, we've all had compare and contrast essays to write over the, you know, it's a kind of. Um, but it is, it is. I mean, it's one of the. It's one of the ways of getting. I, I just feel that it's it's an incredibly complicated period, and it's one of the ways of getting across the fact that there isn't a single way of looking at things. There's all sorts of, in, you know, different people with different at, at views and different approaches to exactly the same problem. Um, and it is quite so. And I also wanted to get across the complexities of the relationships between people. So some some of the people are rivals, um, and some of them are related, but not particularly. Like the two Ferrar, the rulers of the, of Ferrara and um, Rimini that I was talking about earlier, they're they're related, but they're not they're not rivals in any remote sense um whereas the king of aragon and his counterpart is that becomes the duke of milan are completely rivaled and complete rivals and come from totally different backgrounds so they're not remote they're not they're not related one is a son of a relatively ignorant um, mercenary soldier and one you know can trace his family line back to sort of you know 800 a.d um, across the Mediterranean. So there's a very sort of different... And then um, there, there's one chapter, for example, in which I concentrate on the husband and his wife. Mm-hmm. And I think um, that it, it's 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 fortunate. I mean, I can do in this particular instance because actually a lot of the, their letters to each other have survived. And so you do get a sense of the human relationship between two people. Um, uh, this particular... The Mantua archives is filled with letters and I mean, they, you know, so that's one of the reasons why it's possible to, ex- you know, to to examine them in that way. Whereas you can't really, there's no sort of, there's much less domestic um, detail, for example, for the king of, of um, uh, the king of Aragon, mm-hmm. king of Naples. So it just depends a little bit on what's there. And um, and then the, there's another, the one of the chapters deals with a dynasty, how you, how you establish and found a dynasty, much helped by a pope. Um, and that's but so that's obviously that's just brothers and sisters and grandfathers kind of thing. So that, that it's a, there's a big variation, and then there's a there are chapters of rivals. Um, very distinctly, the Medici and the Este family have a major rivalry in the 16th century, which results in one of them going under, or nearly going under. And um, anyway, so that's that's that sort of I, I, I try I tried to, to not have too many identical. Um, um, sorts of, you know, I tried to have to, to pick up as many sort of variations as I could. Absolutely. Fascinating stuff. You mentioned the um, the letters. Barbara is the one who had 14 children. Yes. She's an amazing, she she turns up as a young, you know, little girl from, she's German. She speaks, you know, she turns up as sort of 10 year old and she speaks no Italian at all. She's not allowed to keep her, or she's not allowed to keep her 
German um, uh, sort of household because it's important that she forgets her German connections, as they say. And so she's just thrown in at the deep end at far too young to have any... But, you know, I suppose, I mean, she's the daughter, she's the niece of the emperor, and so she and she was brought up. This was going to happen to her, but maybe she didn't expect to move to, move to Mantua. But she's very gamely, you know, carried on. And she obviously has a very, very close relationship with, with her husband, Ludovico. And the letters that survive are just absolutely charming. And they're sort of, they're details like there's a, in, in the, on the front of the book, on the front cover of the, not the, yeah, on the front cover, there's a picture of Ludovico and Barbara. And that's their court. And if you look underneath at the bottom of the um, picture of Ludovico, there's a dog under his chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And the dog is called Rubino. And it's his old hunting dog. And he won't talk, you know, he, he's old and sort of he's grizzled. And, and anyway, um, the, the Marquis goes away off on business. And his Barbara writes him a letter saying, you know, Ludovico, you, you didn't say goodbye to Rubino. <coughs> and he's been pacing around the palace all afternoon looking for you. And you suddenly have this incredible sort of sense of real, just ordinary people with ordinary, you know, poor old dog. <laughs> yeah, it's a fantastic it sense of domestic life. <laughs> yeah, no, I, and it just makes life, it makes it so easy. It, makes, it suddenly, you know, it becomes real rather than talking about exalted things like Doric columns and, you know, drapery studies. But actually, it's really just about dogs. <laughs> <laughs> uh, are there are there any other moments that you you could share that kind of really brought this this history to life in a new way that you found while writing this? Well, it wasn't really about while I was writing it because it's my it, but it has been my it's I I, I I trained as an architectural historian and and um, I then started um, about. 20 years ago, I, I, I got, um, I started looking at the papers of Cardinal Ippolito d'Este, who is one of the characters in the book. And it was just a sort of joy of just his, he left behind um, 2000 plus letters, which are more about politics and lost dogs, let's face it. But the, he also left behind 200 account books. And so, I mean, literally everything that he spent and his household spent on every food, um, candles, horses, f- jewellery, material, food, 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 more food. And you could, there's a sort of, you know, there, there, are, there are lists of, of every week, so the week shopping in, 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 at the palace in Rome and how much they bought of everything and the prices of everything. And you get a, then you suddenly realise, you know, everything is just, um, it, just I, What's right? Well, it's real life, and it's just ordinary life, and 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 nothing. There's nothing fancy about it. Whereas this is, you know, this is the builder of the man who built the unbelievably stunning uh, Villa d'Este at Tivoli, which is, you know, it's just cascading fountains. It has a water organ in it, you know, which is operated through with water. It's very quite clever. But it, it, he also, you know, he also. He had, you know, you know, you learn that he bought willow. He distilled willow, which is, I suppose, like salicyclic acid, to try and help his. He had gout, and and this was what you know. You could talk to doctors about. You could talk to practically anybody about this book. I've even managed to have a chat with a bloodstock agent, which is quite an achievement. <laughs> Find something in common. 
between an art historian and a bloodstock agent, I thought was quite an achievement. Anyway, but it's, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know anything about horses, and you know, I do know a bit more now. So there is, you know, the real, the real world is lurking out there, particularly in the documents, in the letters, and in the account books. And it's just that, you know, not that many people sit down and read it. Mm-hmm. So as well as. Um... The various sources you've already talked about. Um, I imagine there's a fair amount of travel that goes into this this kind of research. Like you say, you've been doing it for for years and years, and, and obviously it's a fairly difficult and challenging time to travel. Um, what can you tell our listeners about about the experience of going to the places that allow you to find out more about Renaissance Italy? Um, you can't do it at the moment. I think that's the, one of the things. I don't know whether the archives are open, but the, the Italians do have an amazing, they, they do have an amazing set of archives. And because, as I said at the beginning, these all separate states, um, you know, there's an archive. There isn't just one, like we have the National Archives in Kew. You know, here there's a separate, there's an archive in um, they're called Archivio di Star, state archives in Florence. There's one in, amazing um, building in Venice filled with all their documents. There's another, the one in Rome has, um, the one in the Vatican was substantially re- uh, destroyed in the 16th, early 16th century. And the one in Naples was destroyed in the Second World War. So, um, or largely destroyed. But there's, you know, there's still, there's, the all the Este archives are in Modena. Um, all the Man, all the Gonzaga archives are in Mantua, and all the Sforza archives are still in Milan. So there is a lot of material about. But you, you, it, it's it's just a question of patience. And the other, it, one of the things that people always say to me, but how can you read it? And of course, it's incredibly simple because they they developed another thing that the humanists did is they developed an italic, the italic script, which we all had to learn. At I mean, I don't know. You're you're not. I'm sure. I mean, if you're my age, you had to learn Italic handwriting at some stage. But it's you know the point is it's incredibly easy to read, and there are beautiful letters you know which are like sort of things that you know like um, letter like writing cards we would you know to copy. Um, but and also the other thing about reading accounts is it's just very it's very simple. It's like you know five pounds of butter at two pence a pound. You know you, that doesn't really require an enormous amount of. Of, of Italian to, to to grasp what's going on, and and also the other thing is that they they um, the vocabulary Italian vocabulary is much much smaller in the sixteenth fifteenth and sixteenth centuries than it is now, um, and um, and a lot of it was in code, the letters were in code, so you you know but decoding a letter is quite you know is is you know that's also perfectly possible, but it's it's, it's they're just conveying factual information usually and usually of a scandalous variety or something that they didn't want anyone else to know. So it was it was you know you you it once the once the archives are open it's 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 very easy to and and uh, well I suppose if you like this kind of thing very enjoyable settling down to a you know a day's work. There's always gold. It's just a very it's a very it's a, it's lovely. Mm, yeah, no, it does sound fascinating hunting through for these gems, and and hopefully when the world opens up a bit more, then people will be back to it soon. I think um, so. Yes, hopefully. exactly. Um, so just to um, perhaps wrap things up, then it, for anyone coming to Princess of the Renaissance, um, a bit cold, a bit kind of you know new to this kind of um, world of battling princes in Renaissance Italy, what what would you like them to know about this this account? I'd like them to be interested in 
um, people, I think, and and how different people react and how um, uh, history is about people, not necessarily the very grand people, but quite ordinary people as well. And um, and also they did create some staggeringly beautiful things in 16th, 15th and 16th centuries. I mean, the, you know, the, there's some very beautiful pictures, um, illustrations in the book. Um, and um, yes, I would like them. I, I, yeah, they've got to be interested. I mean, otherwise, but people are interested in history. And I think what they don't like is, I mean, they're slightly put off by, you know, sort of um, political history exclusively um, can be quite off-putting for, you know, for somebody who doesn't know. You need to be able to try and bring it to life. That was Mary Hollingsworth. Princes of the Renaissance is published by Head of Zeus and is out now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for a conversation on medieval treachery.